House Speaker McCarthy and the Republican insurrectionists. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. Well, it took 15 ballots, but Kevin McCarthy by giving all kinds of concessions to the Freedom Caucus, which largely supported January 6th, Kevin McCarthy finally got the votes to become House Speaker. It's gonna be a interesting time ahead, both for the House and for the country. And here to talk about it is Eric Ward, he's an executive vice president at Race Forward. He's a senior advisor for Western State Center. Eric is an expert on the relationship between authoritarian movements, hate violence, and preserving preserving inclusive democracy. Uh, Eric, great to have you. First of all, what did you make of the 15 ballots that uh, that it took for McCarthy to win? Yes, uh, what we saw for the first time is the emergence of what Trumpism is going to look like in the post-Trump period. And so these these ballots, the, the 16 ballots that were cast, served three purposes in this moment. The first, David, was to condition the American public to lead us to believe that there was some big distinction between these standout renegades in the Freedom Caucus and Kevin McCarthy. The truth is the distance between them and their ideology is non-existent. In each case, whether they were the renegades holding out or Kevin McCarthy, the goal is to undermine American democracy, to continue to weaken the gains of the civil rights movement by displacing democracy and inserting an authoritarian government that is not answerable or transparent. So the votes were really first about conditioning us to the new reality. The second was a jockeying of power, of course, in the vacuum that has been created by the diminishment of Donald Trump. People are jockeying for position. This is why you saw several of the renegades fundraising between Mm. each vote, trying to build their power and speak to their base. The third thing we saw though, is preparation for the dismantling of federal agencies and federal governments. And that's why once Kevin McCarthy secured the vote, the first things that he began to announce is the disruption of the ethics committees an investigation on the Department of Justice. And we will continue to see these types of movements in the coming weeks and months. And aside from the movements to dismantle a committee or to scale back the Department of Justice, are there specific policy priorities or legislative Uh, items on their agenda for the Freedom Caucus and the Renegades? Absolutely, when you look at the placement of some of the Renegades and the subcommittees and the committees uh, that they will be positioned on. When you look at some of the policy proposals, including right the dismantlement of the Internal Revenue Service. We should understand at the end of the day, this is about power, but this is also still about graft. This is a growing movement that understands that there is no one watching the shop in this moment. No one to prevent them from looting the pockets of the American public. And to do so, they need a weakened federal agency at the time where many of us are calling for stronger federal oversight against graft, against the degradation of the environment. What we will begin to see are policies that state that they are populist in their intent. But at the end of the day, they're weakening oversight over government agencies. And this will allow more corruption and more graft. I agree with you on the corruption and graft, but in terms of actually being effective and weakening the federal government, does it seem like perhaps maybe that's more aspirational than anything because you still have the US Senate acting as something of a break on whatever the House may come up with? 
Absolutely. So we understand that on the march towards authoritarianism, the goal of the Republican Party was to seize both the House and the Senate and the sentence, the Senate, excuse me. Now, let's pause for a second. It's important to understand they do not have the majority support of the American public. Their support comes through gerrymandering and through the diminishment of the right to vote in this country. However, they have used that to gain illegitimate power, to claim that they speak on behalf of the American public. They were able to successfully gerrymander themselves into a House majority. They were prevented because of the American public of being able to do that at the Senate level. But the goal at the end of the day is it doesn't matter whether they are in control or not. It's about how much disruption they can create in the daily life of Americans and to send the message that government as a federal force is ineffective in responding to the plights and the needs of the American public. The American public, of course, was horrified two years ago on January the 6th. Anything perhaps ironic or maybe even symbolic about the fact that there's Kevin McCarthy finally getting elected House Speaker on January 6th and the first person he thanks is Donald Trump. Is the first person he thinks. So two years ago, we watched the insurrection start outside of the Capitol. Two years later, we are watching it begin inside the halls of, of, of the Capitol. And absolutely, the, the nod to Donald Trump is a nod to the founder of an ideology and a movement that sees itself in the position of being able to undermine American democracy. Maybe not through taking control of the House and the White House and the Senate, but creating enough disruption that it leads to the undermining of our ability to take care of day to day issues, such as the climate disaster that is happening in Northern California. Whether we are talking about environmental pollution, the loss of jobs, the collapse of the Federal Air Administration and its ability to allow flights to take off this morning. These are tensions that will continue to grind away at the American public and its belief that we can rule ourselves as people. We don't need, a, we don't need serfs, or sorry, we don't need feudal lords, we don't need dictators. We just need the American public and these renegades will seek to wear us down. Any chance that this backfires, maybe not in the short term and in the long term, because what I, you know, the Republicans have a very narrow majority in the House. They're going to have a hell of a time maintaining power, even with, regardless of what they what they do. And then when you when the American people look up and see, well, wait a second, now they're appeasing these insurrectionists, these this Freedom Caucus. I wonder if that may only help Democrats the next time around in in, in the twenty twenty four elections. Yes, we should understand that there are challenges within the ability of the Republican Party, particularly these renegades to consolidate the party. The first is, is that there are Republicans who are beginning to push back at the takeover of their party. And we have to figure out a way of supporting them, even if we are not in agreement on the social and economic issues of the day. The second is to understand that we have to secure and fortify the Senate. Those of us listening today need to understand that the Republicans are poised in a better position 
to win control of the Senate during the next wave of elections than they were in this last electoral cycle. So we have a lot of work to do to make sure that voter turnout is happening, that voting rights are protected in this period. It is the Senate right now that is the buffer from preventing the Republican Party from establishing this authoritarian state that they are committed to doing at this point. And as a political strategist, do you see a particular message perhaps resonating or being successful both for Senate races to come, but also in general for Democrats who are looking up and thinking, okay, how can we how can we cauterize what the Republicans are doing by sending a message to the American people that is clear that gets them to take action? Absolutely. Look, the, the strategy is this. We, we have to make the case for a functioning inclusive democracy that centers people, that is inclusive and transparent. Americans are tired of the status quo. We have watched this in wave after wave of elections. And so it is on the Democratic Party to move forward on providing relief to American families, ensuring that there is jobs and housing and making the promise of equity real in American society. Look, at the end of the day, the control of the Senate will be made in very few senatorial districts in the United States. And we have to make sure that our family, that our neighbors are educated, prepared and motivated to go to the polls for their own families and for American democracy. It means that we have to get to work now, we can't wait. A year from now, we have to begin to mobilize in our communities to fight for those things where the right to live, love, worship, and work free from fear is upheld for American democracy. A lot of elections in American democracy seem to get seem to be decided by independent and moderate voters. Um, will it resonate with them? If in fact the Republican House is not able to govern. In other words, it seems like it was such a clown show, as some Republicans said, just in terms of getting McCarthy elected speaker. The idea that they're going to be able to pass any legislation, fund the government, reach any sort of compromise with Democrats seems like a fantasy. So if they are dysfunctional in terms of running the government, does that move voters in the middle? Look, the American voter is exhausted with the partisanship, with the conspiratorial theories. We have watched this election after election, have the majority of Americans reject this authoritarian push by the Republican Party. Even members of the Republican Party oppose this authoritarian shift. Absolutely moderate. Republicans, moderate voters will continue to show up on behalf of democracy. But we have to understand, sadly, gerrymandering in this country has ensured that the Republican Party can rule without the will of the majority. That's a broken democracy. And that doesn't get fixed unless Democrats decide to fix that process. Should Democrats reach out and extend a hand to Speaker McCarthy or should they hold back? I think that we have to be wary, sadly, of reaching out to Congressman McCarthy, House Speaker McCarthy. Look, he has made it very clear that his goal was not to change course in terms of what the renegades wanted, in terms of issues and its impact on working families. At the end of the day, McCarthy simply wanted to be in charge. We should understand that. And we need to act accordingly. We can't give up democracy 
because we're afraid of authoritarians. We have to fight for democracy and we have to find those Republicans who are willing to work alongside us. And we have to find the things that we have in common in this moment. It's time for a united front in support of democracy. Eric Ward, Executive Vice President at Race Forward, also Senior Advisor of the Western State Center. Eric, thanks for coming on, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has some rather, shall we say, unusual alliances that helped him and propelled him to become US House Speaker. One of his closest allies now is Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene. She has fashioned herself as something of a serious politician these days and something of an establishment figure. Who would have imagined that establishment and Marjorie Taylor Greene would ever be said in the same sentence? Well, here to talk about this is Joan Greve. She's a senior US political reporter for The Guardian. Um, Joan, this relationship between McCarthy and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, what do you make of it? Yeah, well, it's kind of in some ways been in the works for a while. Uh, you know, uh, Republicans expected to win back the House in the midterms. They did not expect to win it by such a, a narrow margin as they did. But uh, with that in mind, McCarthy's kind of been laying the groundwork for his speakership uh, uh, bid for a while now. And that has really involved sort of trying to build bridges with some of the far right members of his caucus. Of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene was removed from her committee assignments by when House Democrats controlled, when when Democrats controlled the House because of her very extreme views and comments in the past. And so one of the, I think that one of the things that helped build that relationship between McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene was that he did promise her, it appears some pretty plumb positions on certain House committees. It seems pretty likely that she will serve on the House Oversight Committee among other potential positions. So it seems like this has been in the works for a while and it in in the end it it proved pretty crucial to McCarthy winning. And it also seems like Marjorie Taylor Greene at least for the last several weeks if not months has been trying to essentially I don't know mute things a little bit tamp things down almost like there's been a sort of a normalization of Marjorie Taylor Greene but it sort of raises the question is it the is it Marjorie Taylor Greene who's sort of becoming more normalized or is it the Republican party which is sort of moving towards her? Yeah, well, it's a really good point because you know we did see that uh, you know Marjorie Taylor Greene was in McCarthy's corner from basically from from the first vote for the speakership. Uh, while but you still had uh, twenty people who were you know who were voting against him for the first uh, you know I think. 13 ballots or so and then he eventually got that number down to 6 and you know he was eventually able to win but you know I think that speaks to the fact of that even if you have a certain a figure like Marjorie Taylor Greene who is so known for her you know rather extreme views even if you have someone like that who's kind of starting to maybe as you said kind of like start to quiet those views a little bit it's not like those it's not like it completely eliminates any sort of far right of uh, sentiment within the House Republican Conference because you still have the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts uh, and those kinds of figures who are willing to kind of uh, who really are really willing to go to battle with uh, someone like McCarthy because they view him as too being too quote unquote establishment, even though he has made all of these concessions to them. What are some of the concessions that the Freedom Caucus got? And I know that Matt Gates never voted for McCarthy. I think at one point it was present and Lauren Boebert may be the same. But clearly other members of the Freedom Caucus as a whole, they got a lot from McCarthy. How does that benefit them? 
Right, so they won a number of important concessions. One that has gotten a lot of attention is this idea or this policy that will allow essentially any member of the House to call for a vote to oust the sitting speaker. And that will really, that will be, will. It'll be really interesting to see how that kind of plays out as the House moves forward. Because, you know, if let's say McCarthy tries to cut a deal with Democrats, like you know, to raise the debt ceiling, I'm not necessarily predicting that that will happen. But there is this sort of like trigger mechanism that they can use to try to then remove him from his position. So that policy will kind of hang over the head of any sitting speaker, including now McCarthy. And so that was a big concession. But it also seems like he at least. It seems like there were at least some kind of tacit promises that people that certain holdouts would kind of get maybe certain committee positions. Of course, you know McCarthy does not directly assign like you know who serves on which committees, but he has a lot of say in the matter. And now we're kind of starting to see as those decisions are being made, some of the holdouts are are serving on some really influential committees. I think it came out today that at least two of the members who voted for McCarthy about a dozen times, two of them are serving. I believe on the Appropriations Committee, another two are serving on the House Financial Responsibility Committee. But you know, so like they are like they, it seems like they will have a fair amount of influence in this session of Congress. And so in that sense, they did win a fair amount by refusing to support him for across, you know, 14 ballots or so. There has been this debate over the last couple of weeks as to whether Kevin McCarthy essentially enabled the Freedom Caucus by tolerating and accommodating them for the last two years and perhaps not being as strong as some people had liked. With the argument being that if he was much stronger, the Freedom Caucus might have respected or feared him more. And therefore McCarthy might have been able to whip them in line. Do you buy that? Well, I think I think that McCarthy more more so than anything, I feel like McCarthy sort of kind of reflects the like direction of his party. You know, of course, maybe if he had taken, you know, I think that if McCarthy had taken a different tactic with his with this with this group with a set of his conference. More likely than not, he just would have probably backed out of the speakership race altogether and would not have even probably been in a position where he was, like, you know, at least within grasp of winning the speakership. Because, you know, really, like this, in so many ways, like, you know, these holdouts, they reflect a very real part of the Republican Party. You know, like the, the, they, a lot, they're a large section of the Republican base, they sort of, they sort of want to see like you know their members like you know go to battle against you know like the you know quote unquote like you know DC establishment and that includes some to often it does include like you know fellow republicans who may not they might view as you know not being um kind of not viewing far enough to the right and so you know i guess if McCarthy had taken a stronger stance, would it have changed the behavior of those members? Probably not. No, it probably would have changed his political position within the conference. But I think that you know he, McCarthy, kind of he made made his bed and had to lie in it. And his uh, his decision was that he was going to play ball basically with these far right members for the sake of being able to continue to serve as a leader of the House. And you know I think his legacy will reflect that. But you know I think that. At the end of the day, these members were probably always going to behave in the manner that they have. It was just a manner of who was kind of trying to corral them. And he decided that he still wanted to take on that role. That role, is it maybe, I don't know, in name only given how thin the majority is and the vulnerabilities that Kevin McCarthy has because of that, it just takes one member, as you mentioned, to have a new vote. I mean, it seems like it's hard to imagine anybody who would really want this job given the parameters that Kevin McCarthy has to deal with. 
Yeah, it does really feel like he's kind of having to govern with uh, one hand behind his back at this point. You know, like he he really, especially with what uh, that policy that we already talked about a little bit, the fact that any any member can call for a vote to oust the sitting speaker, that's really going to kind of like that could allow a lot of his or uh, the far right members of his conference to really kind of strong arm, strong arm him at various points. And you know, also, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, Republicans do not control the Senate. They do not control the White House. So it's not like they'll be able to like pass actually have substantive legislation enacted. You know, we saw them pass some anti-abortion bills today, but you know, those are just headed nowhere in the Senate and they're really just messaging new bills. And so really the job of the Republican speaker in this Congress is going to be to kind of launch quote unquote investigations of the Biden administration and likely Joe Biden's family as well. And also to try to likely to try to pass must pass legislation like a debt ceiling hike or a government spending bill. And I think that's going to prove extremely difficult. And so it is, I think, I think it's fair to say that it's a pretty unenviable task to be Speaker of the House right now. So if that's all that Kevin McCarthy is left with, and that is, you know, these sort of maybe cosmetic PR type of investigations in the Joe Biden or cosmetic things that don't have any bearing on what the US Senate does, and maybe McCarthy gets tripped up over a spending bill or a budget bill, it will certainly seem to the American people like this is total government dysfunction. But it also may seem like to the American people, well, it's just sort of the status quo. Nothing's getting passed, nothing's really changing. How does this cut politically? I think it's a really good question. You know, I think that uh, you know, the House Republicans so far have indicated that they do intend to very, like you know, very aggressively investigate, you know, the the Biden administration, including potentially one House Republican has already filed articles of impeachment against the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, and you know, I think that those sort of those sort of decisions and those kind of political acts will play well with the Republican base certainly you know might help you know they might get like you know some you know if they if they bring secretary Mayorkas in for like you know questioning which I'm sure they will do a number of times you know they might get some viral clips that will show up on right wing news sites which will help their fundraising numbers and but you know it's probably not going to win them many friends with the people who they really need to convince to support them you know like the people who you know people who might have supported Trump in 2016 and then flipped to supporting Biden in 2020 and that was the difference between a win and a loss for them and so you know I think that it it will help them win some round like you know those kind of you know those political investigations and you know those messaging bills might help them win some brownie points with their base but clearly the support of their base is not enough to get them it's likely not enough to get them back to Senate or the White House you mentioned Donald Trump what is his standing right now with the Republican Party Party. I mean, he gave sort of a lukewarm, tepid endorsement of Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy, the first thing he does after winning is thank Donald Trump on January 6th. Um, where does Donald Trump sort of come down in terms of his influence these days? Yeah, you know, as the speakership battle was unfolding, there was an interesting analysis I saw that said that something along the lines of Donald Trump has unleashed forces that he cannot control. And I think there's some kind, there's some truth to that. You know, a lot of these the holdout members who were preventing McCarthy from winning the speakership were, you know, they were kind of 
rode into office by writing a very like you know, by embracing Trumpist policy or policy or I should say Trumpist form of politics. And now that they are in office and they have you know some power themselves, especially because because of House Republicans narrow majority, they have much more power. Of course, if Republicans had won the House by a wider margin, this wouldn't have mattered at all, right? But because it was so narrow, they do have some power here. And you know, it's like I think that this whole speakership battle kind of showed that Trump may not have as strong of a grip on these members as he thought he did. And, you know, we'll see how that impacts, you know, future House fights and, you know, whether he can corral them if they, if need be, in the future when that comes up. Joan Greaves, senior US political reporter for The Guardian. Joan, thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, Craig Lowry, Bart Kyle, and the entire team at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.